Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, President Buhari nominates a lackluster cabinet after a three-month delay. What does this tell us about his plans for the next four years? And Zimbabwe's economic and political crisis continues its downward spiral. What should the region and the international community do in response? Plus, we discuss presidential term limits in Africa. Why do so many of Africa's leaders see themselves as indispensable? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Nigerian President Buhari is off to a slow start again. Three months after he was sworn in for a second and final term, he submitted 43 names for his new cabinet. Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari on Wednesday unveiled his new cabinet containing 43 ministers. The ceremony took place at the State House in Abuja. Now, these picks are mainly retreads uh, from the last cabinet. A couple of former political godfathers who didn't win uh, their Senate seats. Average age of the nominees is 60 years old and only seven are women. So what does this say about Buhari's plans for the next four years? Joining me to talk about Buhari's second term and other topics are Aisha Asori, Executive Director of Open Society Initiative for West Africa, Mark Bellamy, a former U.S. Ambassador to Kenya and Senior Advisor at CSIS, and Alex Noyes, a political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Aisha, let me turn to you first. What's your hot take on this cabinet? There are some technocrats. I didn't say that in the introduction, but overall... I'm pretty pessimistic about this group, but I know that you'll have a much more thoughtful, nuanced uh, interpretation of how we should think about the cabinet. To be honest, I don't know if anybody can be um, nuanced about this cabinet. I have to say that even though there, there are no signs that we should be optimistic, I didn't want to be optimistic about it. But I'll say three things. The cabinet is one of conflict management, compromise, and corruption. And I'll, I'll explain. Conflict for me is just, there's a lot of internal uh, palace intrigues, um, 2023 is obviously in play. So some of the people who have been appointed to the cabinet are, seem to be there to checkmate other people, you know. So like right now, before in the first term, um, what, um, Amechi was the godfather in quotes of the South South, but now you have Akabio in the mix and now you have Silva in the mix. So who really is going to be the godfather of, of, of um, the South South going forward? So that's, one of the things that I, I thought about when we look at the, the makeup of this new cabinet. Second compromise, as you pointed out, a lot of people are there because of loyalty to the president. There are lots of old forgotten people like Magashi, Dada, Nanono, that nobody remembers anymore. Nobody's sure why they're there. There's lots of people, lots of ex-governors because obviously they want to sort of keep them in play for 2023, believing that, okay, they still have some clout in the state that they once ruled. And then there's the corruption where you have lots of people who are just, you know, raise a lot of eyebrows in, in the sense that why are these people who are known to be corrupt in this cabinet, Silva, Apabio, Abubakar, who used to be the chairman of UBEC. So for me, those are the three things that I thought would be, be an easy way to categorize this uh, very uninspiring cabinet going forward. Yeah, I think it's a really great way of framing it. I have to say that there's a couple of names on this cabinet that I had to crack open my history books and try to figure out who I in the know, world these like, people who were. Are these people? <laughs> it's it's wonderful to hear that they're still kicking around, but they've they're way past their prime. 
on the corruption side, as you said, I mean, Buhari is all about anti-corruption and he's nominated people who are knowingly corrupt. To be honest, I don't think in the second term Buhari is going to have a leg to stand on in terms of saying he's fighting corruption. I really don't no, think. I think you're right. And it's 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 hard for me as a Nigerian optimist to reach that conclusion, but I, I, I'm with you. I, there's something I want to explain to our audience who may not be following Nigeria as closely as Aisha and I do, that there's a number of these really informal traditions around how you select a cabinet in Nigeria and then the process for confirmation. So first of all, you have to have a minister who represents every single state in Nigeria. So that means 36 ministers at minimum, Plus, you want to have a minister who represents each of the geopolitical zones. So that's six geopolitical zones. We're now up to 42. So Nigeria almost always has 42 ministers. Buhari has 43. It's not the biggest in the world, but it's it's up there. And the second thing that's really interesting about Nigeria, and I think I'm going to ask Alex to kind of weigh in here, but we don't know what cabinet position each of these people will have. Buhari or any president submits the list. And then they're confirmed. And then eventually we find out what portfolio is. One more rub. If you were a former senator or if you are a woman, you bow and go, meaning that you don't have to submit to any questions at the senatorial process in the confirmation process. So that meant that 22 of the 43 nominations literally were not processed at all legislatively. There was no screening. And so Alex, maybe not a Nigeria political guy, but as a political scientist, like, what are the problems with this approach? I mean, there's some obvious challenges, right? I mean, how can you actually assess their qualifications for a position if you don't know what position they're going to take? And on top of that, just because you were a member of the Senate means that you are absolved of any screening. That seems problematic. I mean, is this just a norm now and everyone accepts it? Or are people on the ground pushing against this tradition? Well, on the ground, probably not pushing, but citizens are constantly pushing and questioning. And again, again, Buhari has managed to disappoint so many people who thought he would be different. You know, this is for me, this is really low-hanging fruit. How difficult can it be? It took you almost three months to put the list together. The least you could have done as you put them together was see where they were going. You know, when people, when, when Buhari said he was about change, these are the small things, some of the small things that people thought, okay, Surely he'll do better than the last presidents have done, but he still managed to disappoint us. And so that's where, for me, counting the technocrats, as you sort of mentioned earlier, it's meaningless, you know? Yeah. No, Mark, you have served all over Africa. And I mean, have you seen anything like this before? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've seen anything quite like this before. I mean, I'm not an expert on Nigeria either. I know there are thousands of diplomats and journalists and academics who know more about Nigeria than I do. But I was struck by your... uh, you're, uh, you're mentioning that you know there are these criteria for building the cabinet. So you have 42, 42 people who are selected for the cabinet without any necessary qualifications other than that they live in the right place. And so these are it's obviously not a cabinet being built for speed and efficiency. And uh, and what is it? What is it being built for? Well, it's obviously being built for political reasons and to ensure that there's a certain balance and to ensure that there's a certain there's a certain equilibrium. I guess not being an expert in Nigeria, what always surprises me about Nigeria is how even if governments consistently underperform. So many Nigerians are still committed to the political systems that they have, still committed to democracy, even when it's oftentimes underachieving. It couldn't be a better transition because one of the things that I desperately wanted to do with Aisha here is to talk about her book, Love Doesn't Win Elections. It's a phenomenal read. I mean, I think I I went through that in a day and you can get it. Uh, on Amazon, it's an ebook, and it's about Aisha's run for the House of Representatives in 2015. And 
what you unpack, I think, in this book, at least some of the things that I took away is just how pervasive money is, even in a primary run. I mean, you're constantly having to hand out money to to meet with people. It's just it's it's not controversial. It's just part of the process. And then some of the challenges of, of being a female politician. And then this again, another unique Nigerian element, which is are you from the particular state that you are running from? And it's not just you, are you or your parents in this issue of ingenuity? And so Aisha, maybe if you could share one or two things in the book that I think maybe would help our audience understand some of the challenges of the political system and maybe what Mark's asking, why are people committed to it still? I'll start with money. I mean, because honestly, money is just the main pillar of what ails Nigeria and what ails Nigeria politics and actually also what keeps people coming, I guess, to, to, to Nigerian politics. For those who are the politicians, it's, it's a remarkable investment. And that's what it is. It's an investment. But let me give you an example, for example. In, in 2015, to buy a presidential form for the two major parties, APC and PDP, it was between $76,000 and $61,000, with APC going at the higher side. That's just for the presidential nomination form. Wow. That doesn't count your, your campaign fund. In 2019, for APC, it was almost double that, to $125,000. So how many people can afford that? While PDP went down by half, and the obvious reason is because now they are no longer in power, so they don't have access to the to, to the pipeline of, of of free funds. So the thing is, Nigerian politics for now is really about capturing resources. It's an extractive economy, it's an extractive state where every political service, every government service, every public service is designed to extract from citizens. And so that's what makes it so attractive to the bandits and the politicians for the citizens. I think it's a mix. They're committed to democracy because they keep hoping things will change. There's now that there's you know so much social media, you see the revolutions happening around. People want to buy into that. People do like the idea of participatory democracy, being involved, getting their voices heard. But the truth is, when you have a process like this, where it's as Obatun just said, being in politics and winning elections is do or die. Then you have to ask yourself: It's do or die because of what? Are people dying to serve? Nigeria, are they dying to serve themselves? Party officials want their peace. The citizens want their peace. The voters want their peace. So it's a really dysfunctional system. And for me, this system is, explains more than anything why it's difficult for women to be successful in politics, not just because women are generally um, less economically, financially stable than men, but because the culture of politics in Nigeria is about hunting, it's about gathering, it's about amassing and for yourself, not for the not for the people. And so that's another reason why it's really, really hard for women and I'd say even young people to get into politics. Well it sounds like that if we don't evolve from a hunting and gathering sort of political system, we're going to be stuck in a rut. Probably a lot more to well, say in about Nigeria, this, right? At least. In Nigeria, at least, yeah. Well, Aisha, there's a lot more to say about this topic. I always joke that I, I sometimes wish the show was just called Into Nigeria, uh, but there are 48 <laughs> other countries that we should probably pay attention to. We haven't talked about Zimbabwe since February, but I've been waiting to have both Alex and Mark on the show because they're key members of the Zimbabwe Working Group, which is based here in D.C. Alex has got an article coming up on Zimbabwe security sector reform in the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Zimbabwean Studies. And this is a really timely conversation because the day of the taping, August 16th, there's been an attempt for a protest in the streets of Harare. 
Earlier on Friday, demonstrators took to the streets of Harare after their plans for large-scale marches were banned by police late on Thursday night. The opposition ultimately called it off, in part because the security services were there in mass, and those demonstrators that did show up uh, were violently dispersed. So, Alex, you were just in Zimbabwe. You spent 10 days there. What is happening? Why is it going from bad to worse? Yeah, thanks, Judd. Um, I'm just back from from uh, almost two weeks in, in Zim. I was doing a study there looking at the political and economic changes uh, or lack thereof since Mugabe's ouster in November 2017. And uh, it's bleak. It is. Um, what I was, you know, I've, I've been studying Zimbabwe and going to Zimbabwe for over a decade now. And I was struck really by the difficulty of just logistics of getting around in everyday activities like trying to buy bread and fuel. Um, and trying to get currency. Um, Three weeks before I went, they went from the uh, US dollar, which they've been on for about a decade, back to uh, Zimbabwean dollar. And so they de-dollarized. But it's very difficult to get the bond notes in the street. So I go to banks and ATMs don't work. And I go to the banks and they say, we don't have cash, so we can't change your USD. Um, You go wait in fuel lines and the queues are, are hours and you get there and then they run out. So, I mean, there's even people who park overnight and when the delivery arrives, then they get in line again. It's really bleak. It's this whole idea about a reform effort under President Monagagua, I think, has been revealed to be a a facade, a charade. The violence today at the hands of the police just goes to show that, you know, they're talking about repealing this repressive legislation, POSA, the Public Order and Security Act. Um, They invoked it yesterday. Um, So I think this this whole idea that a new Zimbabwe and open for business, I think, is, is, is a total charade. Unfortunately. So the question is, where does that put friends of Zimbabwe? Where does that put Zimbabwean civil society? Where does it put the international community? I mean, this is government doesn't deserve a second chance. It's clear where its allegiances and interests lie, and they are running the country into the ground. So, Mark, as a former diplomat, what's the playbook here? Like, should we be sitting it out? Like, how do we lay the groundwork for a more democratic? Responsive government. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think we're without uh, some some influence in Zimbabwe. You know, where the the U.S. sanctions are in place, um, international sanctions are in place. Zimbabwe doesn't have access to the international loans and the international finance it needs, and that provides a certain leverage for outsiders to try to at least get a process started, whereby maybe Zimbabweans could be brought together to talk about mechanisms for, for particularly for economic reform and for addressing the economic crisis therein. Now, I don't think this is something the United States alone can do. One of the realities about Zimbabwe and Southern Africa is the role of South Africa. Yeah. I mean, South Africa is absolutely fundamental to this process. And if South Africa could be you know, quietly brought into a dialogue and quietly brought into an idea of let's see if we can't begin a process of getting Zimbabweans in, in a national dialogue built around economic reform, I think you could start to begin a process, maybe finding a way forward. But this is, this is as Alex said, it's a very dire situation. It's a gridlock situation. Uh, but I don't think it's one where we completely lack leverage if we're quietly willing to use the leverage that we have. Okay, Alex. So do we have leverage? How do we use it? The South Africans have been unwilling to be, you know, forceful or active here. And Ramaphosa has been out talking about how the sanctions need to be lifted with respect to Zimbabwe. So what's your prescription? Yeah, I think Mark's right. We do have some leverage, especially in this in this moment where Manangagwa is trying to appeal to the West to change tack, you know, at least 
uh, in rhetoric, say that he wants international reinvestment and reengagement. So we do have we do have some leverage. Uh, we're the biggest donor uh, to Zimbabwe. That often uh, does not get uh, the coverage it deserves. And so there is some leverage there. Uh, we need to use it in a way that doesn't reward the current government. These guys have bis, you know, been mismanaging the economy and the government now for 39 years. So this idea that they're suddenly going to change and, and be you know, technocrats or, or uh, the new Rwanda is, is, uh, is laughable. So, so yes, yeah, South Africa uh, has a long history, as you know, in Zimbabwe. You know, SADC, the Southern African Development Community as well. Most Zimbabweans that I spoke to don't have a lot of trust in South Africa or SADC uh, as being a, a mediator that can bring about real change, whether that's uh, through a national dialogue or otherwise. Um, but I spoke to folks across the political uh, divides, uh, both Nelson Chamisa and Tendai BT and, and a variety of folks on the ZANU-PF side, uh, SB Moyo, the foreign minister, Patrick Chinamasa, the former um, finance minister. There was a consensus that something needs to be done. It's a good starting point. So, But if I'm Monongagwa... Why do I do this, right? I think I won fairly last year in the election. My incentives are to sort of just hold tight. But if there's enough pressure from the region and from the U.S. and other international actors and from Zimbabweans themselves, I mean, like I said before, it's bleak. This could be a tipping point. Uh, Zimbabweans are willing to protest a bit more than they have been perhaps in the past, but they're also cowed by the violence, you know, the increasing human rights violations at the hands of the police and the military are, are real. So I'm not sure what, what, what the answer is. I mean, I, I support a national dialogue, but it's got to be genuine. It's got to be inclusive. We had an event here at CSIS on a food crisis a couple of months ago. I think there's probably going to be more opportunities to keep engaging on Zimbabwe and keeping on the spotlight. So, you know, stay tuned both on the podcast and the events that we do. Let's move to the the paradigm for today. And I, I couldn't be more excited to have the three of you here because Aisha and a friend of the pod, uh, Chidi Odinkalo, wrote this book called Too Good to Die, Third Terms and the Myth of the Indispensable Man in Africa, which I love the title. We're going to just name the podcast the same title. That would be good synergy, I hope, but I love that. Too Good to Die. And then, Alex, you've written a number of Monkey Cage articles for the Washington Post. Mark is a former diplomat. You've had to deal with this. I have my own experiences on this issue. So, Aisha, let's start with you. In your book with Chidi, uh, you look at former President Abbas and Joe's attempts to extend his term in office. This is back in 2006. And maybe a little bit of what happened, why he was defeated, and what do you mean by the myth of the indispensable man? I think for me and for me and Chidi, when we're thinking about this, is that there are three things tied to this indispensability theory, at least three. I'm sure there are more. The first is structural. The second is functional. And the third is intrinsic. The first is structural and speaks to the political economy and what the Nigerian state is currently designed to do, which I spoke about earlier, which is, as I said, to extract the most resources for the smallest group. And this is not, this, this is not unrelated to the states in which the colonialists left, the British left um, Nigeria in 1960. The state at that time was largely designed to extract, exploit, take out resources, in a very efficient way. And so that's where the second functional comes in. And that's why since the colonialists left Africa, many African countries have this narrative of we need strong men, we need know-it-all people, we need firm hands, you know, we need an, an, the ultimate patriarch, which again is sort of alpha male, old man, or young man with a gun, goes on to be an old man. And you'll see that there's a pattern even across Africa that very many of these men, whether it's Mugabe or Museveni or all have ties to the military or guerrilla war. So that's, that's the idea that, look, we need strong men to replace 
the colonialists, and now you have these strong men who can come and hold everything together. And then that's, that's, that moves on to the third thing that I pointed out, which is the intrinsic, which is the psychology of the men who think that they're indispensable, who come to take on this godlike complex, and it's not unrelated again to the structural and the functional, where you have a state where people want to keep their access to public resources, so they tell presidents, heads of states that they can do no wrong, they know everything. So it's in that context that we have an Abbasanjo who, after leaving office in 1979, comes back in 1999 and looks around and sees people like Bia and Mugabe that, you know, he left them in 1979. He comes back 20 years later and they're still in power. And, he, you know, he must have thought to himself, why did I ever leave? But unfortunately for him, because of the way the Nigerian state is designed against extracts and the gentleman's agreement, because it's all, it's all men so far, that Nigeria is a joint PLC, turn by turn PLC, where people have to come and people have to go. We don't agree on many things, but on this thing, we definitely agree. And so, in a way, what happened to Abbasanjo and his third term did in, in 2006 was that democracy won. You know, one of the rare times that democracy won. Those of us who work on Africa have this seminal experience, which changes the way they think about the continent. And Aisha, I was in government during the 2006 effort. And when I saw the Nigerians... Mm -hmm across partisan divide, across ethnic and religious divide and regional divide, stand up and stop this. Uh, that has always been a defining moment for me in the way I think about the continent. And it's one of the reasons why I'm always alive to change and always alive to uh, the status quo being upended. And, and sometimes I get it wrong because I, I want to believe, but I thought it was a really important moment reaffirming the democracy in Nigeria, even if uh, there's been a lot of bruises since then. But if we expand beyond Nigeria, this is an issue that hasn't gone away in other places. And we've already seen term extensions in Burundi, in the Republic of Congo, in Rwanda, in Uganda. And that's just a few. There's been protests in Togo. Very clear that the president of Guinea, Alpha Conde, is going for another term. Jury's out whether Alassane Ouattara of Cote d'Ivoire is going for another term. Alex, I think you've written very eloquently about why term limits are so important for a democracy. Judd, why don't I just uh, provide a little bit of context? Four main points I want to make. One is that over three quarters of Africans support term limits, uh, according to Afrobarometer data. That's, that's a huge, overwhelming amount. Um, sort of against the conventional narrative, in the 47 countries in Africa that have non-ceremonial heads of state during 1999 to 2015, 40 had term limits. So it's actually pretty prevalent practice. And then again, against the conventional narrative, despite some of these high-profile cases that you've outlined, Recent research shows that overall the trend is actually surprisingly positive of, of people respecting term limits. So uh, political scientists Daniel Posner and Daniel Young found that the majority of African leaders who faced two term limits during this period, 1990 to 2015, actually stepped down when their term was complete. It doesn't get enough tension, that, it doesn't. that part of the story. Agreed. And so that's why I think that article you mentioned actually got some traction because people thought I was crazy yeah. when I was saying, actually, these are working in some circumstances. And of course, the, the high profile cases overshadow that. Um, so third, as, as you mentioned, term limits, while no cure-all or panacea, they actually are good for democratization. The research has proven this, including my own. So Nick Cheeseman and uh, Gideon Maltz show that term limits can help push semi-authoritarian countries toward democracy um, in a variety of ways. One is handicapping incumbents and increasing the chances of democratic turnover um, from one party to another. And then my research showed that actually term limits can encourage uh, democratic changes even when incumbent parties uh, stay in power. Uh, that is to say, when individual leaders uh, don't expect to be around forever, they are w more willing to accept constraints on their power. And I, and I looked at Kenya during their power-sharing accord in the 2010 constitution as a good example of that, where Kibaki um, 
want, was concerned about his legacy more than he would have been if there, if there were not term limits there. And then lastly, they also set a strong precedent. Once a term limit has been respected, um, there was 10 cases during this period, 1990 to 2015, uh, that the term limit was respected. And um, every single president who, who has followed has chose not to push for a third term in these cases. I mean, that's a really important point because I, when we see these pressure points around third terms, it's almost always the first time around under a constitution for a new leader. That's, that's certainly the case in Guinea. That's certainly the case in Cote d'Ivoire. In the Obama administration, which I you know, spent some time in, we went all in on these third terms. And we can have a debate on whether it was too hard. But um, we're in a very different world now and where we're not really talking about this issue at all. And in Guinea, which I've talked about multiple times now on the podcast, 82% of people support term limits, according to Afrobarometer in Guinea. Now, we just saw Tibor Naj, the Assistant Secretary of State, who was a former ambassador to Guinea, make a comment on this, his first comment on this. And it was essentially Guinea's a sovereign state, and it's free to adjust its constitution as long as it's consistent with democratic practices. Mark, is that right? If you were king of the world, how would you approach this issue? Yeah, it's ironic in that I think the Russian ambassador publicly said the same thing. Yes, that's true. President Conte was legendary in that constitutions are neither the Bible nor the Quran. And therefore, <laughs> sure, I mean, these are sovereign decisions. You know, these are sovereign decisions and we need to acknowledge that. But, you know, sovereign states have the right to make sovereign decisions that are wrong. And in the case of Guinea, I mean, it is uh, the other irony, I think you alluded to it, Judd, is that, you know, Alpha Conde was a principled opponent of Secutore and Lansana Conte and strong men who had no respect whatsoever for term limits, imposing term limits was really the centerpiece uh, for years of his opposition yeah. to these. And when he becomes president in 2010, term limits are installed. And now nine years later, he's decided, well, maybe we really don't need these. Well, maybe term limits they weren't all. indispensable, but he but he's is. Not. He's not. Alpha Conte is 81, you know, right. and I, it really, you know, does he need another five, seven years? So, you know, what we can do it is really case by case. In certain countries where we've had good close relationships, Kenya is an example. I think with a lot of quiet behind the scenes diplomacy, we were able to persuade we and others, but primarily the United States was able to persuade Daniel Eric Moy that really overturning the, the, the limits was not a good idea. And I think in the case of Conde, you know, or maybe the case of others, this, you know, reminding them that, that you know, legitimacy is a wasting asset. You know, the longer you're there, the less attractive your legacy is going to be. And I think in the case of Conde, a good case could be made that he served his country well. He put in two good terms. And the best thing he could do now would be to prepare the way for a successor. Yeah, it's really, I think, the reference to Kenya, I think this is true also in Nigeria, but also Malawi and Zambia as the international community has done a good job of reinforcing domestic opposition. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, this has to come from Africans and from citizens, but the international community can create this echo chamber and validate it. One of the things that I've learned now being on the outside of government is that, you know, sometimes I get a lot of pushback on the U.S. shouldn't be doing these things. It's not the U.S.'s role. And so, Aisha, this is uh, your chance to tell me that the U.S. or the West shouldn't be meddling here. What, in your view, is the appropriate role for the international community around these issues? Oh, good question. I mean, is there any... Uh, <laughs> I was just thinking about it. Can we keep the West from meddling? Um, just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, to be honest... <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think consistency helps. Okay. I think consistency helps. So if the West is consistent, let's put it that way, about the messages about the term limits and respecting constitutions, I think there will be, that's a very good first step. I think the next, next step would be to build on, for example, what we saw with the U.S. in Nigeria just after the 
post the 2019 elections where there was a visa travel ban. I think more of those things, uh, not just to the leaders themselves, but also to their immediate families. You know, deny them access to those countries, deny them access to healthcare facilities, deny them access to schools. I think we need to build on the pressure. Yes, will they have alternatives? Will they be able to go to places like Saudi Arabia and UAE? Probably. But I think consistency, I think moving the needle beyond just the wrap and the knuckles that we typically see, I think there has to be a bit more meat, more meat on the bone in terms of how the West um, views these things. And I think more support, obviously, for civil society. I know that's a tricky one where the West can be accused of interfering, but for me, those are some other things that I think would, would really help for more more punishment, more sanctions, more consistency in the messages coming out and uh, more support for civil society. I think those are really sensible and measured recommendations. Thank you, Aisha. And uh, thanks, Mark and Alex, for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.